morning. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us at our chapel down at our Minnetonka campus and online as well. It's great to be with you all this Palm Sunday. Uh, my name is Dan Thorson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week, and many Christians, many churches throughout uh, history uh, have spent a week focusing on the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And Palm Sunday traditionally is a time where we focus on a particular uh, event uh, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's welcomed by crowds and crowds of people, probably just as cute as all the kids that were up here, uh, waving palm branches. Now I just want to jump right in uh, to our text uh, for today. Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this event uh, was actually familiar to the ancient people uh, at this Time. It was a similar event. It's what would happen when a new king was crowned uh, and would enter in a city welcomed by the citizens or even when an emperor or a king would go out and win a, a great victory in battle over their enemies and would return victorious and people would be there to, to greet this ruler. Palm branches in the ancient world were a symbol of victory and liberation and laying down cloaks was a symbolic way of recognizing and acknowledging and honoring a king or a ruler. And this is why the Jewish people shouted, Hosanna, praise God for the son of David. Son of David. The Jewish people had long believed and hoped that God would give them a new king. Because in their ancient past, uh, they remembered this time when Israel was an autonomous nation, very prosperous, uh, and it was under uh, the rule of King David. And so they had this prophetic hope that one day a new king in David's genealogy and his line would be raised up by God once again uh, to overthrow the oppressors of Israel, which at this time was the Roman Empire, uh, and to reestablish Israel. Um, as a sovereign nation. But I want us to, to focus particularly on what Matthew says in verse 10. The entire city was in an uproar as he entered. You know, I feel like we're living in a constant state of uproar in our society. 
constant. Every life circumstance, every event, every political reality seems to be accompanied by conflict, by arguments, flared tempers, extreme rhetoric. Every event, every circumstance is depicted as life or death. This is what I've noticed about uproar. Uproar is almost always the result of some sort of conflict between different groups of people. Groups that have different values, different priorities, different worldviews. And these groups become riled up towards one another when something important is happening. And so it should be no surprise to us that there are different groups, different factions in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus rides into town. Groups that deeply disagree with one another, that have different values, and that have different visions for what God is going to do and how he's going to ultimately fulfill the promises that he's made to Israel. And so Jesus riding into Jerusalem creates a lot of uproar because this is a very significant moment because this is what a king does. He's riding in as the new king of Israel. And so this touches on everyone's deepest hopes and dreams and also their greatest pain and struggle. Jesus' triumphal entry highlights the deep divisions and differences that existed between these groups of people. And what's fascinating is that uh, Jesus' triumphal entry serves as this catalyst moment for conflicts that Jesus has with different Jewish groups of people. And we, as we continue to read through Matthew's gospel, we see him have moments of confrontation with a number of different groups. And it's the conflict that he has with these groups of people and these different tribes and, and the way that they are hoping that God is going to, to move on their behalf that actually leads to his arrest, his beating, and his crucifixion. Now, I think that Palm Sunday and what I'm wanting us to see today is that we're really no different than the people back then that we too create uproar over our divisions and that we can become overly focused on other people's problems and we can be just as guilty as overly focusing on those people out there, those groups out there and all the problems and faults and failures of others. And so as we look at Jesus' confrontation with these different groups in Jerusalem, I want to see that he's actually confronting us at the same time. And my prayer is that as we see this, that we'll be humbled, um, that we'll be brought to a place of self-reflection, and that maybe we'll be less inclined to create the sort of uproar that we often do over our divisions and differences. So first... Uh, I want us to see how Jesus confronts our misconceptions. Now, by the time Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, there's already an uproar of sorts revolving around Jesus' own identity. Uh, people are unsure about whether this is the promised king, the promised Messiah, or not. And a lot of the confusion revolves around the fact that Jesus isn't showing up the way that they would expect a king to show up. He's not acting in a typical authoritative way that they were accustomed to from leaders. 
And this becomes really starkly clear in this moment when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. You see, the widespread belief and hope was that Israel's new king, the coming Messiah, would overthrow their Roman oppressors. And that this new king would lead Israel into that renewed kingdom, just as it was in the time of David. Now, this hope, uh, this vision, was most dramatically taken up by a group of Jewish people known as the Zealots. They were revolutionaries. And they expected that when God gave them a new king, that it would be time for a violent revolt against the Roman Empire. Now, some of the uproar in Jerusalem when Jesus entered it was no doubt due in large part to this wide expectation that this was the moment. It's time. It's time for a conflict with the Romans. And the zealots would have been ready. I would imagine weapons would probably have been present in the crowd that day. And yet it becomes quite clear that they were wrong, that they have a deep misunderstanding about who God is and what he's going to do for them through Jesus. And Jesus confronts their misconceptions. He doesn't come riding in on a war horse. He comes riding in on a small donkey. He doesn't come with a battalion of soldiers. He comes with this ragtag group of young teenagers and young men from very unassuming backgrounds. And Jesus doesn't ride in and immediately go to confront Roman officials or the Roman soldiers. He instead actually goes to the temple and confronts the Jewish leadership. And so Jesus, in this triumphal entry, he's, he's calling out the zealots for their misplaced hope and their faulty thinking because God's liberation doesn't come through violent force. God's kingdom is not established by power as the world uses power. And so the zealots and everyone who is influenced by them are wrong. You know, Jesus tried to convince his followers throughout his ministry that those who wanted to establish the kingdom by force would only end up leading to their own destruction. But people didn't listen to him. They couldn't understand. Because they had this conviction that their perspective was the right one. And that ran too deep and too strong. You know, even Jesus' own disciples clung to this idea. And even later in Matthew's gospel, when the Romans come to arrest Jesus, some of them rise up with weapons to violently defend Jesus. And when they do, this is what Jesus says, Matthew 26. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, the all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now, many of us are like the zealots. We're like the disciples. We're 
unwilling to admit to the possibility that our opinions and maybe even some of our convictions might be misguided. We're so convinced that our way is the right way that we don't leave space for God to confront our misconceptions. We don't leave space for God to change our minds. You know, many of us even have views like the Zealots. We expect God to move in the world by using power and authority the way that we would want to use power and authority. You know, the way that Jesus confronts the Zealots, I think, should make us take a really long look at ourselves, about our own humility when it comes to how we hold our opinions and our positions on different issues, but also in the way that we think about violence, of God and politics and our own role as God seeks to influence the world through us. It's because if we're not open to God challenging and reshaping our thoughts and our opinions, my fear is that we would end up like the disciples and that we'll desert him when he doesn't show up and act the way that we expect him to. We have to cultivate a deeper sense of humility about our opinions, about what we think, and about what our groups think, the groups and communities that we align with the most. Jesus confronts our misconceptions. Uh, The second thing we see is that Jesus confronts our lack of compassion. We see this take place with a group of religious leaders known as the Sadducees. Now, these Jewish leaders, they oversaw the rituals uh, around uh, worship in the temple. And were cozied up in many ways to the Roman Empire. They had the most to lose in some ways when it came to a conflict with Rome. So they wanted to keep the peace. They wanted some semblance of harmony between the culture and the Jewish religion at the time. They wanted to maintain their authority, their influence, and their place of privilege. They wanted the status quo to stay the status quo. Now, as I mentioned, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the new king, everyone would be expecting him to confront the Romans, but he doesn't. He rides on this little donkey and goes to the temple. And there he confronts the priests and the Sadducees. And he confronts the misuse of the the ways that they were worshiping. He overturns the tables of the money changers and he drives out all the animals that they were selling for sacrifices. And Jesus says this after clearing out the temple in Matthew 21, 13. The scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And then a verse we don't often spend much time looking at says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, we don't really understand the, really the strength of this conflict without a little bit of historical background. Now, hundreds of years earlier, in Israel's history, uh, David, who we've already talked about, was crowned king. And when he was crowned king, we read how he goes to a war with some of Israel's enemies, the Jebusites. And at the time, the Jebusites were occupying the city that would later become Jerusalem. And so um, after David is crowned king, he leads Israel's army to uh, take over this city and defeat the Jebusites. And when they arrive at the city, the Jebusites actually mock David and his army. And this is what they say. You will never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. And then a couple of verses later. 
On the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. And then there's this little line that's added by the editor of this ancient text, and it says this, that is the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. Now, apparently, because of this historical event, it became a policy and a tradition for the lame and sick to not enter the temple. Now, can we see what Jesus is doing here? Not only is he calling out the misuse of the temple and how the Sadducees were worshiping, but he's actually challenging this deeply held tradition and usurping the authority of the Sadducees by inviting the lame and the sick and the blind into the temple. This is a big deal. And Jesus is confronting in this moment the, the, the Sadducees' lack of compassion. It's like the Sadducees, our desire for power for self-promotion, for selfish gain, for comfort, to keep the status quo can turn a blind eye to the suffering and injustice of the people around us. We can become so focused on just maintaining the status quo and our position in it that it can be hard to care about the very people God's wanting us to care for. We can be so focused on our groups and the people that we align with that we can completely ostracize the ones God's calling us to minister to. We have to make sure that our positions, our success, our places of influence, our resources aren't just being used for ourselves, but for others. And where we can allow God to shape our hearts to be more like his and to care about the people that God cares about. Jesus confronts our misconceptions. He also confronts our lack of compassion. And then finally, Jesus confronts our hypocrisy. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves, they met together to question him again. Now, the Pharisees were a, another religious uh, group of leaders, and they had very stark ideological differences than the Sadducees. Um, they also had different areas of influence. They were sort of the teachers for the populace, the local population. They were the, the group behind the synagogue movement. Uh, and we read throughout Jesus' life how he would go town to town and go visit the, the local synagogue. And that's where people would gather to learn about God's law and the scriptures and to, to follow it uh, more faithfully. Because the Pharisees, uh, they believed that if they could just teach God's people to follow God's law, that this would lead to God's intervention on their behalf. And the Pharisees were very wide, widely respected. They, they were looked up to uh, as leaders and teachers. Now look what Jesus has to say about them. Matthew 23, 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. And then Jesus goes on this vicious 
rant against the Pharisees in front of everybody, in front, in front of the Pharisees themselves. And he points out all of their abuses and oversights and their failures over and over again, calling them hypocrites. I'll just give you one example, but there's many. It says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean too. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he never talks this way to sinners. He never talks this way about Roman culture. He never talks this way to Romans. He talks this way to the most widely respected, looked up to religious leaders. It is very convicting to me. And I think it should be for all of us. We are so used to pointing our fingers at others. We're accustomed to accusing other groups, other tribes of their failures and justifying and vindicating ourselves at the same time. Far too often, we, myself included, as Jesus followers, are prone to grumble about culture, about different generations, about people that are different than us, think differently, value different things. We're in the habit of looking down on others, on how they're misled, confused, or even evil. And if there's anything I want us to take away this morning, if there's one thing I think that Jesus' triumphal entry is communicating to us, it's this. Jesus wants us to address our own blind spots first. To humbly acknowledge that we might have misconceptions that we're not always right. To recognize the ways that we're selfishly living for ourselves, maintaining the status quo and lacking genuine compassion and care for the people that God's calling us to care for. And to realize that Jesus is con confronting our hypocrisy and that he's wanting us to take our own sin seriously. Now, I think this applies to us individually, but also to our groups and our communities as well that we should be humble and even critical about the groups that we align with and identify with most. Now, contrary to popular belief, Jesus' followers aren't primarily called to point out the flaws, failures, and misconceptions of everyone else. Now, we're called to cling to what is true and good and what God reveals and to wisely discern what it means to faithfully live according to that truth. But we don't need to take it upon ourselves always to be the moral police for everyone else. We're called primarily to model humility and repentance ourselves. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, I think we have it, maybe not. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own. This is the attitude that Jesus is encouraging us to adopt, 
to think that our problems and to treat our problems as bigger than other people's problems. As Christians, we should be known not for grumbling and complaining, not for our judgmentalism or our bitterness towards other people, not for the uproar that we create by highlighting our divisions and our differences. No, we should be known for our humility, our quickness to self-reflect and self-examine. We should be known for our love and our deep compassion. So in preparing to, to celebrate Easter next week, my prayer is that we would humble ourselves, knowing that the king we welcome comes to save us from our misconceptions, to save us from our lack of compassion, and to save us from our hypocrisy. There's this really powerful line in the New Testament uh, written by the Apostle Paul. It says this in 1 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Paul was a former Pharisee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have come to forgive and save us. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us a renewed sense of humility, of our need for you, um, that you help us to, to not just create uproar unnecessarily, but to be people that, that model humility, understanding, and compassion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.